All of us love before and after pics, don't we? I imagine that many of us, when we design to go to the gym or to go on a diet or a cleanse or a fast, we find ourselves motivated by before and after pictures. We look at what somebody looked like before, and then we look at what they look like afterwards, because after all, the proof is in the pudding, is it not? We want to know that if we go down the same route and put in the same effort, that we might experience the same results. We see the same thing on HGTV and other things with house restorations. We love seeing dilapidated houses barely standing on their frame be brought to new life with freshness and lightness and light. What was once abandoned and empty is now teeming with life and fellowship and community and color and vibrancy. And I imagine the reason that we're so drawn to those is because they serve as somewhat of an analogy for our own lives. That we long to see similar restoration in our own lives. We long to see similar restoration in the lives of those around us. We want to see those before pictures become like those glorious after pictures. Well, the first chapter of Isaiah shows us a before picture. Later prophecies throughout the book, and we'll get to those, are going to show us the after pictures. So this is the beginning of a journey of restoration. And that by the end of the book, what God achieves is not simply a patched up version of you and me. Oh no, what we're going to see is that his grace is going to create all things new. Not just a better version of yourself, a new version of who you and I are. One author puts it this way, Isaiah 1 opens the way to our God glorification by deconstructing our self glorification. And that's right. And what if God says, or rather, what, what Isaiah 1 stops and makes us ask is what if the most important thing about us is not what we think about ourselves, but what God thinks about us? We live in a culture that says the most important thing about you is is what you think about yourself, that you love yourself and accept yourself. But what if that isn't the most important thing about you? What if the most important thing about you is what God thinks about us? And what if God says that we've done a lot of wrong and not much right? And what if God tells us all of this, not ultimately to be cruel, but because he has a remedy for us. Friend, listen to me. God is not concerned with your reputation. He is concerned about your holiness. And God is loving and kind and good to expose us and even if necessary to embarrass us in order to save us. In chapter 1, Isaiah is telling us the truth about ourselves. So let's not be fooled by our polished appearances and our stylish theories of our darling selves. No, those things will be the death of us. 
The big idea of this passage, Isaiah chapter 1, is essentially this. If you're taking notes, it's my sermon in a single sentence. That God confronts us and convicts us not to harm us, but to save us. God confronts us and convicts us not to harm us, but to save us. What we're going to see in the passage is really three points. There's three sections. We're going to see the first section begin in verse 2. We did Isaiah 1-1 last week, but it's going to begin in verse 2 and go all the way through verse 10. You see that word at the beginning of verse 2? Here, that's the beginning of a new section. And what we're going to see is that God is good to confront us. That's point number one. God is good to confront us. And then if you look at Verse 11, you're going to see that word again, or 10 rather. You're going to see that word here. And we're going to see in verses 10 all the way through verse 20 that God confronts us to save us. God confronts us to save us. And then finally, in verses 21 to 31, we're going to see our third point, And that is that God saves us by purifying us. That he saves us by purifying us. So God is good to confront us, and he confronts us in order to save us, and he saves us by purifying us. That's the flow of thought in Isaiah chapter 1. So with that in mind, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Isaiah has just said that this is his vision. He is giving us a new way of seeing. A new way of seeing all of reality. That's what we talked about this last week. That God has pulled back the veil to help us rightly understand who we are in light of who he is as holy, holy, holy. And how we are to be rightly related not only to him, but to one another and to all of creation. And how he's going to bring about this right relation through a suffering servant. That is his son, Jesus Christ who will die for us and ultimately in his power bring about something altogether new, a new heavens and a new earth where we will live with him forever as new creations and God's enemies will be defeated and no more. This is the vision of Isaiah. But in verse 2, God is going to confront his people. And he begins by saying this, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The heavens and the earth are being called by God to be his witnesses. This happens a number of times over the course of the Old Testament. And it happened most notably when God created a covenant with Israel. So in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That I have set before you life and death Blessing and curse. The rule of the old covenant is this. If you obey me, you will live. If you disobey me, you will die. And he called heaven and earth to come witness against it. And in verses 2 and 3, heavens and earth, oh, they are going to be shocked as they're brought in to be witnesses in this courtroom, so to speak, because God is going to begin prosecuting his own kids. Some of you have seen in the news over the course of that la this last year of the young man up in, oh, I can't remember where it was, somewhere in, uh, in northern New York, that he was living in his parents' house, and he's in his mid-30s, and they refu he refused to move out. 
And they gave him warning and note after note, you need to move out. Here's some cash to go help yourself get started. And he continued to refuse until the parents took him to court. And the court decided in favor of the parents and ended up make, forcing him by the sword, figuratively speaking, to move out of his parents' house. That the parents stepped into the courtroom to prosecute their own child. Well, God is doing something similar. Only he's infinitely more holy than those two parents are. And this is what he says. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. Israel was the Lord's son by election and by exodus. He had chosen them and he had redeemed them and all the way since then since bringing them out of out of egypt had providentially cared for them as a father does his children but we see here that even though god had reared them up they rebelled against god and the problem according to verse 3 was spiritual stupidity god says my children make dumb animals look like phds you see, animals are stubborn. They don't always do what you want them to do, but at least animals have enough sense to come back to their master to be fed. They know who they're ultimately dependent upon. They understand that their welfare ultimately rests with the one who owns them. Well, God is saying that in the same way, your welfare depends on my grace through covenant. But you act as if you don't even know me. And you live as if you don't even understand the nature of our relationship. Spiritual stupidity is treating our generous Heavenly Father as a problem to work around as we get on with the real business of life. Well, in verse 4, the charge continues. A sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. There in the first half of verse 4, we see four nouns describing God's grace in redeeming them and of their unique privilege as His chosen people. They're a nation, a people, offspring, children. That God's people are meant to be a unique people and nation as Abraham's offspring and the firstborn sons of God. That is, those who are to receive his inheritance. But then you see four adjectives there in the first half of verse 4 describing how that glorious privilege given to them by God's grace has been corrupted by their rebellion. That they're not a holy nation, they are a sinful nation. That they're not a unique people. No, they are a people laden with iniquity. The sense in the Hebrew is that their sins have become so heavy that God is tired of carrying them. They're not Abraham's offspring. No, they are offspring of evildoers. They're not sons of God. They're children of corruption. Now, you've got to see here that God isn't ultimately railing on his children. He's not just venting against them. That's indicated by the first word in verse 4. Ah, what that signals to us is that what we see here is a lament. That the prophet isn't nagging Israel. He is weeping. God's children have been called to greatness. 
Here they've been spiritually devolved into something lower than farm animals because of their spiritual stupidity. Well, how do they get there? We see that in the second half of verse 4. It says that they have forsaken the Lord. They despised him. They have been estranged from him. They treated their covenant redeemer as a last resort rather than the fountainhead. Rather than look to God as supremely valuable. No, they valued things that are not God more than God. God, as we read, reared and brought them up. But now now they're treating God like a total stranger. They are utterly estranged from him. Can this ever happen to us? Can we ever become so reliant on our own brilliance and our own strength that we treat God as a last resort? Can life get so busy and can, that we might end up living for days or weeks or even months as if God is a total stranger to us? Can it be that the Christian life for some of us becomes no more than a dutiful grind? That our hearts just aren't in it. One author put it this way. For many, Christianity has become the grinding out of a general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. But childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and the poetry and the music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach in the back of the refrigerator. Self-sufficient, grinded-out Christianity offends God and it injures us more than we realize. That's what we see in verses 5 through 8. And the prophet is going to make this clear in back-to-back illustrations. In verses 5 to 6, he opens up with his first illustration and it's a beaten man. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up, and they're not even softened with oil. Have you ever known somebody that seems to just be a glutton for punishment? You're patient with them. You help them. You give them wise counsel over and over and over, and yet they keep running back into that destructive situation or that toxic relationship only to get beat up some more. Have you ever known anybody like that? One translation has verse 5 like this. Why do you want more beatings? And that's exactly what God is saying. The biggest obstacle to our spiritual progress, brothers and sisters, listen, is that we feel healthy even successful when in fact our heads are sick and our hearts are faint. That we expect so little of God that we continue to abandon him and despise him when he is the one who offers grace and healing. That we turn our backs on him and treat him like a stranger and we just go in for more beatings. One more glance at that computer screen when no one's watching. One more raised voice behind closed doors with our spouses and children. One more dollar skimmed off the top at work because nobody will notice. One more time card added to just a little bit. I mean, you've been getting away with it for years. 
that toxic relationship that you continue to go back to over and over, whether it's a family member, a boyfriend, or a girlfriend. Because you trust your own wisdom more than you trust God's wisdom. That your desires speak to you more loudly than God's word. Isaiah is pleading with us. Why? That if your aim is to be miserable, haven't you done that already? Haven't you had enough? Wouldn't you rather begin to heal? Aren't you tired of getting beat up by sin? That's what Isaiah is saying. But he says we're not just like a beaten man. We're also, verses 7 and 8, like an invaded country. It says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Just compare verses 7 and 8 with how the Bible describes God's people at their best. He has called them to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession so that we may proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, but Isaiah saw that God's people had been reduced to something kind of like a shack in the middle of a field that had been picked over and burned by invaders. They're barely a shell of what God had called them to be. Sin promises great things, but always hides the price tag. When we rebel against God and his word, we will always end up beat up and burned down. Do you believe that? God is gracious to warn us against sin. And he doesn't do it to be harsh on us. He does it because he sees the deceptiveness and the destructive power of sin in ways that we don't see, even though we have been beat up over and over and over again. We are a stiff-necked people, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. Well, Isaiah says here in verse 9 that we deserve it. That if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah says, consider Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The prototypical city of evil and of corruption and of injustice. God completely destroyed them because of their sin against them. Isaiah says, we are what they were and we deserve what they got because of our sin. But if you notice closely at verse 9, there's a slight difference. Unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, where everything was destroyed, God has graciously left us a few survivors. That Isaiah's hope is not ultimately in Israel's ability to right the ship. His hope is in God's sovereign, electing grace. His hope is in covenant. It's interesting because when we get to Romans chapter 9, Paul is going to quote Isaiah 1.9. For many of you, Isaiah 9 is that troubling passage in the Bible that talks about predestination and election and of God choosing. 
But election is anything but a bugbear to the apostle Paul. He sees it as an object of hope and at the very tip of the spear of God's sovereign grace and his ability to save sinners. And so when God is making his case about how it is that God can save sinners without considering anything good or bad that we've done, he goes to Isaiah 1.9. He says, look at Israel. We are just like them, Paul says. That we are no better than Israel, and Israel was no better than the worst people who ever lived. And yet, for his own glory, God chose us to be part of his surviving remnant. To be part of a few survivors, the true Israel. Not because of anything good that he's found in us, but for the sake of his great grace alone. Friends, the doctrine of election is not meant to be an intellectually confounding notion. It's not meant to be a subject of great debate among God's people. It is meant to be a comfort for us. Because it relieves us of the notion that anything good or bad that we do affects our salvation, either positively or negatively. That's why when you get to Romans 9, and Paul is talking about Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated that he had made his decision, chosen Jacob before they'd even come on the scene. He says that it was before they could do either good or do bad. And Paul is going to go, this should be a comfort to us. That it is the tectonic plates, the superstructure of grace, is that it's God's choice and not our deeds. It is unmerited favor. You haven't earned it and you can't lose it. That if you are one who by God's grace has been brought to repent and believe in Christ, then you are one whom he has chosen from before the foundations of the world so that in Christ he might present you holy and blameless. And yet our life looks a lot like Israel's life, doesn't it? And that God is kind and good to confront us and convict us so that he might change us. The doctrine of God's election gives us comfort that when the Lord's discipline comes, it's not because he's forsaken us. It's because he is for us. That's what Isaiah is putting his hope in. But now we're looking at the second point. He's going to keep on going in verse 10 all the way through verse 20. We've seen that God confronts us. But here we're going to see that God confronts us to save us. Here's his motivation. And we're going to see essentially four things over the course of these verses. In verse 10, we're going to see a confrontation. Then in verses 11 to 15, we're going to see an accusation. Then in verses 16 and 17, we're going to see an invitation. And finally, in verses 18 and 20, we're going to see a decision. Confrontation, accusation, invitation, decision. Look at verse 10. God confronts his people. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He says, you're not like Sodom and Gomorrah. You are Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet what we see here in, in verse 10 is God's grace. And it's because only when our self-confidence is shaken to the very core can we begin to hear God afresh 
And that's what he's doing for his people. And so what God is doing isn't mean. It's not intolerant. The first word of the gospel is confrontational. Repent and believe. If you're a Christian, it's because the word of God graciously and pointedly called you out on your sin. And that wasn't God being mean and it wasn't God being cruel. It was God being kind and gracious so that you would see in that confrontation your need for Christ. And he's doing the same thing here. In his grace, he is confronting them. It stings. It's uncomfortable. I don't really know if I want to hear this, but it is all of God's grace. And it's his grace when he does it to us as well. So he confronts his people in verse 10. But then in verses 11 to 15, now comes the accusation. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. I want you to notice something. Everything in verse 11, all their worship is by the book. It is burnt offerings, the fat, the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. They are doing everything that God had commanded them to do in his law. And so if they're doing everything that God had commanded them to do, what's the problem? One commentator put it this way, that the way God evaluates our worship goes deeper than the outward forms churches prize so deeply. God is concerned not with the outward form of their worship, though it may be right. God is concerned with the heart of their worship. And we see him get into it a little bit more here in verse 12. He says, when you come to appear before me, what a glorious and beautiful picture of worship. That through these appointed sacrifices that God had instituted in his law, Sinners were made able to come and appear before God. It is meant to bring them to worship and joy at the response of God's great grace to them. Oh, but look at what they had done. That thing which was beautiful, he says, you have trampled in my courts. You have taken beautiful roses, thrown them on the ground, and you have stomped all over them. The sense of the Hebrew here is the idea of a silent court and you hear nothing but the stomping of feet. No joy, no singing, no praise, just mechanical worship. God's people took that very thing that God intended to be beautiful and he trampled it underfoot. And then in verses 13 and 14, they get to the heart of the problem. You see there in verse 13 that they came with vain offerings. Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convictions. I can endure iniquity and solemn assembly. They came with vain offerings. Literally, they came with empty worship. That's what that means. That hypocrisy had hollowed out their worship. It was kind of like what? C.S. Lewis talked about when he talked about they were men with no chests. There was no heart. They were whitewashed tombs, really good looking on the outside, but nothing but death on the inside. And we see what their hypocrisy is at the end of verse 13, that they had combined iniquity 
with solemn assembly. In other words, they abandoned and they despised and they turned their backs on God all week, but then they came and they put on their faces for church. This hits close to home for us. And we need, as we see Isaiah saying in verse 10, to hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears, beloved, because God is speaking to us. God hates nothing more than hypocritical worship. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. What does God hate? We might say that God hates murderers. And terrorists and young children being trafficked and unborn children being slaughtered in the womb. And we would be right on all those accounts and many more. God hates all of that. But just as much as God hates all of that, God hates worship without repentance. He says, I can't stand it. My soul hates it. Down to the very fiber of my being. They become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. I don't want to do it anymore. <clears throat> this hits really close to home, doesn't it? We might think, sure, I have these unconfessed sins in my life, but that doesn't have anything to do with my worship. But God is saying, your unconfessed Sins make your worship unendurable to me, despite what you say and sing on Sunday. Because your sins throughout the week, they go unconfessed and unconfronted. They reveal what you really think of me. I don't really care how loud you sing on Sunday. I don't really care about your shiny, happy faces during the meet and greet after the welcome. I don't really care if you feign godliness in front of everyone else because if your life is marked by unrepentant, unconfessed, unconfronted sin, then you are combining iniquity with solemn assembly. And I can't do that. It makes me sick, he says. And so if you're here and you're wondering why God seems so distant or why your prayers perhaps seem hindered, well, then it may be because you're more concerned with the form of your worship than the quality of your life. It may be that you're more concerned with what you look like than what you're really like. This is what we see in verse 15. For those who are committed to hypocritical worship. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my hands, my eyes from you. Even when you make many prayers, I won't listen because your hands are full of blood. God rejects their worship. The worship that God rejects, notice, isn't pagan idolatry. God is rejecting the very worship that he himself has instituted in his law. They were doing everything by the book. They sacrificed, they sung, they prayed, <clears throat> but we see here in verse 15 that the hands that they spread out in prayer were, quote, full of blood. That when they opened their hands in prayer, when they raised their hands in praise, they were stained 
in blood. Of course, he's talking about it figuratively. That it was a murderous culture. Later on in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that murder can take any number of forms, including anger, cutting words, self-righteous criticism, gossip, and unresolved relational tension. And the reality is that these things don't create a life-giving culture in the church. Criticizing brothers and sisters, criticizing leaders, grumbling and complaining, gossiping about brothers and sisters behind your back, always thinking that perhaps you're one notch above many of those that you see around you. And to talk about it and to think about it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself, even if just for a minute. That does not bring a life-giving culture to the church. It creates a life-depleting culture in the church. And when we think about it in these ways, well, then I'm afraid that every single one of us has more blood on our hands than we thought. A church that is hostile to people is a church that is hostile to God. And a church that is hostile to God will not see him and they will not be heard by him. Brothers and sisters, these are hard and blunt words. It would be unloving and unfaithful of me to soften them in any way. These are God's words. They are meant to sting us, but they are not cruel because God is not cruel. God wants to save us. And that's what we see beginning in verse 16 and 17, an invitation. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's claw. Or cause. Isn't it interesting how simple and direct these commands are compared to the elaborate descriptions of their worship in verses 11 to 15? It gets us to a fundamental truth. Obedience to God is not complicated. Sin complicates everything. In fact, he says here in verse 16, helping us understand what he means by repentance as he confronts them and calls them to turn. He says, remove the evil of your deeds. Some of you have a translation that says merely remove your evil deeds. That's right. But I don't think it grasps the whole sense of what the Hebrew is saying. It's saying remove the evil of your deeds. That, that repentance isn't just the removal of evil deeds from our lives. No, it goes... Beyond that, it goes the second mile and it goes back to clean up all the residual evil caused by our deeds. All of the wounds and all of the shrapnel that went out and wounded anybody around us when our mouths go off like grenades, when our decisions go off like landmines, we go back and we start putting arms and legs back on by God's grace. True worship begins with true repentance. And repentance is marked by both restitution and reconciliation. True repentance is not merely saying I'm sorry and walking away. True repentance, godly sorrow for sin, seeks to make, that, make things right that we have made wrong in our sin. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. And go. Leave. Don't come to church. 
Be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. I would rather you not give a gift and be hypocritical and unrepentant and go reconcile with your brother than have you come and offer false worship. You need to be reconciled to your brother. Then come. And offer your gift. When we take the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we need to consider as we seek to take it in a worthy manner is are we at odds in any unresolved way with any brother or sister in our church? That the Lord's Supper resembles not only the union that we enjoy with Christ, but the union that we enjoy with one another. And if that union is being functionally broken by our own sin, then brother or sister, you need to refrain from the supper until you make it right. You need to go to that person and you need to ask for forgiveness. And if necessary, you may even need to make restitution. This is what we see in the, in the story of Zacchaeus, isn't it? The repentance doesn't just look like reconciliation when relationships are damaged. It also looks like restitution. Zacchaeus stood after being confronted and dining with Jesus. And trust me, Jesus goes in and dines with him. You know exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's going, Zacchaeus, listen, you need to repent and believe in the gospel, bro. And that's exactly what he did. And Zacchaeus, with a new heart, confronted by the reality of his own sin and transformed by God's grace, stood and this is what he said. Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone or anything, oh, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Money had been his idol. It's what he had worshipped all of his life. And he's tearing every ounce of it down, even at the risk of public embarrassment. Because what does he need all that money? And what does he need public adulation for if he's got Christ? That's the logic. God doesn't care about your reputation as much as you do. There are times where God in his grace is calling you into uncomfortable repentance by having to put yourself in front of a brother and sister, both for reconciliation and uncomfortable restitution. How can we make this right? True worship of God overflows in love for others. Where there's no love for neighbor, there can be no true worship, regardless of how right our forms and practices may be. There's three kinds of false worship in the Bible. Number one is worshiping a false God. We see that all over the Bible, don't we? Secondly is worshiping the right God in the wrong way, like strange fire, Nadab and Abihu approaching in a way that God had not instituted and he burned them up and destroyed them. So it's worshiping a false God. It's worshiping the right God in the wrong way. But there's a third way that we can worship falsely and that is worshiping the right God in the right way in the wrong heart. These people's lips honor me, but their hearts are far from me. That is what Isaiah is confronting. And so he says, learn to do good. Learning to seek justice. Learning to correct oppression. Learning to care for those who are helpless and vulnerable. As a response to God's great grace in calling you and choosing you and redeeming you when you were just the same. That makes God look beautiful. You've been trampling it underfoot. Oh, but true repentance, as embarrassing as you may think that it might be publicly, makes God look good. 
The Apostle Paul says it adorns the doctrine of God. It dresses up the doctrine of God, the glory of God, like a bride on, his, on her wedding day. That's what repentance does. It makes God look beautiful to a world of ashes that long for beauty. I often wonder if one of the reasons that the world will not repent is because it sees a church that will not repent. It sees Christians that are no less prideful than they are. Christians that are no less dependent upon their own wisdom and their own brilliance and their own energy and their own might than they are. Oh, friends, one of the most beautiful and compelling things that we can give a world who is sick and need the good physician is our repentance. It's for the world to see that we need Jesus. That is what God is trying to bring Israel to see. And that's what he's trying to bring us to see. And so he tells them this is what it needs to look like. But notice, he doesn't just tell them how they're to behave. In verses 18 to 20, he tells them how this transformed life will end up coming about. Verse 18, come now. Let us reason together. He's saying, reason with me because sin isn't reasonable. Sin won't reason with you. It will only destroy you. But reason with me. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. He says, your sins are as stained as your blood-soaked hands. Some of you, if, you've, if you're hunters, perhaps you know what it's like to have blood on your hands and how hard it is to get out, almost impossible. Or so I hear. Well, he's saying the same thing. You've got blood on your hands and it's so deep in there that you can't wash it out. If you try, they are like scarlet. But notice here in verses 18, when just when divine justice and wrath is to be expected, we are done for. God remembers mercy. God invites us to come and reason with him. He's saying, let's talk it over. Let's open our hearts to one another. I want to save you. Are you interested? And he offers us nothing less than full pardon. You shall be white as snow. And though your sins are like crimson, they shall be like wool. That when Israel had been trying to achieve in their own strength, everything that they had tried to achieve by their own efforts through their false worship is now being offered to them freely by the very God they offended. But he says in verse 19 and 20, there's a condition. He says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, if you continue to rebel, you will be destroyed. But if you're willing to respond to God's mercy by turning from sin and trusting in, your, in, his, in my word, then you shall eat from the good of the land. You see, God isn't demanding perfection by those who walk in repentance, but he is demanding devotion. He's not calling them to more religious activity, to more fervent outward religious behavior. He's not calling them to more empty prayers. He's not calling them to more Hail Marys. 
It's a call to put away their sin and to put on holiness and purity and love and compassion. It's to seek reconciliation where possible and restitution where necessary. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, though, you find that Israel would not make themselves willing and obedient. And it wouldn't be until Jesus Christ, the true Israel, comes that he is willing to obey God as God demands and that in every way he ceased to do evil. There was none that could be charged of him. That he did good every day of his life to every person he encountered. That he sought perfect justice. That he sought to correct oppression. That he brought justice to the fatherless and he pleaded the widow's cause as he went and preached the gospel of God's grace, his free grace to all. That it's only on the perfect righteousness of the one and perfect and true Israel, Jesus Christ, that you and I might be able, through faith in him alone, to have the kind of transformed hearts that can respond the way that God is asking us to respond. To give us hearts that are willing and hearts that are obedient. That's why he promises in the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, I will take from you your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a fleshy heart. I'm going to give you a responsive heart. I'm going to give you a heart that isn't dead, but it's living so that when I speak, you won't rebel against it. You will want to obey me. You will want to love me. At the very heart of a new creation is new desires that move toward God and not away from God. And if you are one who has been brought by God's grace to repent in Christ, then you are a new creation who's been given new desires and you are now able to freely do what God commands in verses 19 and 20. That you are able to be willing and obedient and trust that insofar you do it in the power of Christ, oh, you shall eat of the good of the land because it's his land and you are his brothers and his sisters and his inheritance is our inheritance. But listen to me. If you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Christ, if you're here this morning and you think this is a bunch of religious hogwash, if you're here this morning and you think, yeah, this whole Jesus thing is not really for me. I'm doing okay on my own. Look at what he says in verse 20. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. That if you refuse repentance, if you will not turn, and you persist in empty hypocritical worship, if you persist in combining iniquity with solemn assembly, God will expose you. And he will not ultimately be a father to you, but he will be a judge to you. And when Christ comes with the sword, he will, verse 20, devour you. You will be eaten by the sword. Oh, friend, don't wait another day. Make today the day that you trust in Christ. Make today the day that, like Zacchaeus, God would sing over you. Today, salvation has come to this house. Trust in Christ. Don't trust in yourself anymore. Why do you want to keep going back to that? Aren't you tired of being beat up? Don't you want to be healed? Go to Christ. God is offering freely to you all that which you've been trying to earn on your own and have failed. Well, in verses 21 and follow, we see that, that God confronts us to save us. But here finally, we'll see that God saves us by purifying us. In verses 21 to 26, the prophet laments Jerusalem's sin. 
And then in verses 27 to 31, the prophet presents God's solution. Pick it up in verse 21. How the faithful city, the city that was once faithful and honored me and worshiped me rightly, has become a whore. She who was full of justice, well, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They don't bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause doesn't even come to them. In verse 21, look at that. He says, how the faithful city has become a whore. Believers are engaged to be married to Christ. His love for us is not some kind of platonic attachment. He's not a buddy to us. It is a passionate covenant love that claims us for himself. And that's why the New Testament refers to us as the bride of Christ. And so whenever you and I form spiritual allegiances, then we are committing spiritual adultery. And that is what God is accusing Israel of doing here. And so that word how at the beginning of verse 21 stands out. It's the same word that begins the book of Lamentations. So what we see here in 21 to 26 is a lament. It's sorrow for where the city is compared to what God has called her to be. It says, once upon a time, righteousness lodged in her, but now what lodges in her? Murderers. Isaiah pictures righteousness like a lonely traveler in hostile surroundings. And in the years of Israel's fathers, it was welcomed. Righteousness was. But you go, man, have times changed. Righteousness no longer lodges there. It doesn't live there. Only murderers lodge there. He's hearkening back to that phrase in verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. And then he goes on further in verses 22 and 23 and accuses them. That the glorious worship of God's people has become diluted by their hypocrisy. He says, your silver has become dross and your best wine has been mixed with water. It is worthless. It's vile. It's sour. And that's because in verse 23, there is no divine influence. Only the influence of godless men. We see here that sin has corrupted every aspect of their society, including verse 23, their princes. And when powerful people lose their sense of God, helpless people get trampled. When powerful people lose their sense of God, godlessness gets put into law. And the people must follow at the threat of the sword. When godless people reject God and forget about him, injustice becomes not just an individual reality, but it becomes a collection of individuals that create a tapestry of injustice. And it shows up in corporations and it shows up in homes and it shows up in governments. It shows up everywhere. It is total. And that's what we see in verse 23. This is how far their hypocrisy has spread. And so in verse 24, the Lord declares, notice the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He is the mighty one, the mighty one of Israel. This is what he declares. I will get relief from my enemies and I avenge myself on my foes. Well, pretty much everything here in Isaiah up to this point, Isaiah has presented Israel themselves as God's enemies and God's foes. So if you're listening to Isaiah preach right now, and you're out in the audience somewhere, or you're a ruler who Isaiah had quick access to, 
you're going, uh-oh. We're in big trouble. Is he really saying what we think we're saying? He's already said we're Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroyed them. Is that what God's going to do? Is he going to avenge himself on us just as he did Sodom and Gomorrah? In Israel, I imagine that Isaiah is preaching and he says this so slowly with a strategic pause. I will turn my hand against you. And everybody gasps. What's God going to do? Fire and sulfur? Avenging armies? What's it going to look like? It's an ominous threat. But that ominous threat, oh, look at this. It's followed by a surprising announcement. How is it that God will turn his hand against them? He will smelt away their dross as with lye and remove all their alloy. God isn't going to destroy them. He's going to purify them. And he has industrial strength, cleaning agents, as with lye that is able to remove our most long-standing and well-established sins. That's stuff that we can't wash out on our own. God can cleanse it. And he is going to take his people through a refining fire until they are once again, into verse 26, called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. You were once a faithful city. You are no longer a faithful city, but I will make you faithful again, he says. But the Hebrew here in verse 26 and 25 says something different, does something more. You notice it says, I will turn my hand. I will restore your judges. Notice righteousness was once lodged, but now murderers, the murderers will be removed and now righteous judges will be replaced. Righteousness is coming back. But this language of turning and restoring, that's the exact same word in the Hebrew, to turn and to restore. But it's being used in two different senses. And what Isaiah is implying is that this one God acting in one way is able to accomplish two great supernatural miraculous things at one time. He is able to purify and he is able to restore. He's able to purify and restore. And that one single purifying and restoring action begins with the work of Christ. And that's what we see verse 27 looking forward to. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. Zion is referring to all those who every age have trusted in God's promises fulfilled in Christ, who have turned and heard the word of the Lord and trusted in him. That's who populates Zion and they shall be redeemed by justice. God will pay the price demanded by his justice. That's why Paul writes in Titus 2, we are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and, keyword, purify for himself a people for his own possession. A people who are zealous for good works. What kind of good works? We'll look back at verses 16 and 17. Zealous for good works. How is he going to do that? He's going to redeem us. How is he going to redeem us? He's going to purify us. How is he going to redeem and purify us? He's going to do it in Christ alone given for us. I will restore you, he says. And I will 
purify you, smelt away your dross. I will do all of this. And I will do it through Christ. But it's going to come through discipline. I'm going to have to confront you. And I'm going to have to sting you. And I'm not being cruel. I'm actually being kind. Because you've been deceived and are being destroyed by sin. And take my stinging, the stinging of a loving father who disciplines you. And is trying to bring you to hope in me and trust in me once again. To repent, as we see in verse 27. And so this raises a question for us. For every single one of us. That when God confronts us by his word. That when we, when we find ourselves stung by what he thinks about us in our lives. Will we turn to God in repentance? Even if repentance looks like being led through a refining fire. In all my years of doing ministry, and even if I examine my own heart and walking with brothers and sisters, one of the biggest obstacles to repentance is looking down the road and going, that is going to be painful. That is going to be embarrassing. That's going to cause me to lose face. It is better for me to hide in my sin and try to work it out on my own than to go to God publicly and confess my sin, lean in on brothers and sisters who can walk with me and speak truth to me, who can exhort me and encourage me and correct me and, and rebuke me when necessary and speak the truth of God's word to me in love if necessary. No, I would rather go on this alone. Because that's too painful a road. Our brothers and sisters, listen to me. It is better to walk with God in repentance through pain than to refuse repentance and enjoy prosperity. You would rather be with God through the pain of repentance if necessary than endure prosperity and hypocrisy. Because there will come a day where your hypocrisy will be revealed and your prosperity will end. Why would you not choose a little bit of discomfort now in this life compared to an eternity in hell rejected by God? Choose repentance. If it's a hard road, God will be with you. He will be your shield. He will be your strength. He will be your fortress. He will be your might. He will walk with you every ounce of the way. Jesus promised, I will be with you always. He will not abandon you, even if it's hard. But you've got to take that road. Because the alternative, according to Isaiah, is what we see in verses 28 to 31. Rebels and sinners shall be broken together. Notice the rebels and the sinners here are those who are offering hypocritical worship. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. That's language of idolatry, of worshiping creature rather than creator. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. It's all going to let you down, and you're going to become just like those things that is spiritually dead. Verse 31, and the strong shall become tender, and his works a spark. Both of them shall burn together, and there will be none to quench them. 
That phrase, the strong and his work, they're metaphors for human strength and potential. Our own brilliance and our own strength, should we choose that path rather than repentance, will lead to death. I don't care how you sing and what you say when you show up to church on Sunday. That if there is sin that you will not turn from and you love sin more than Savior, then you risk standing before Jesus one day saying, look at all the things that I've done for you and him looking at you and going, I never knew you. I don't even know who you are. Why does this end with a warning? Well, that was a depressing end of a sermon. Do you have any good news for us? Why didn't Isaiah end on a high note? And the answer is because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows what we need better than we know what we need. And he knows that you and I do not take our own sins seriously enough. And he knows that we do not take the transforming power of Christ seriously enough. God is good to confront us. And he confronts us so that he might save us. But as we turn in repentance and obedience, his saving us will include his purifying us. And he is good to do it. Do you believe that? Brothers and sisters, let's pray together and go to the Lord's table.